Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and with Ferrari still optimistic despite being well beaten in Bahrain, can it really take the fight to Red Bull for the rest of the season? As for McLaren, what exactly has it got wrong, and why is it so confident things will improve? I'm Ed Shaw, and joining us to answer those questions and more are Scott Mitchell Malm and Ben Anderson. Ben, hello. I've got to ask, that sketch in the background, is that your work or somebody else's? It is my work. I realise this is an audio format, but having uh, like relocated to... Uh, the race HQ uh, in London today uh, for various reasons and uh, found myself a little uh, cavern in the basement to do this podcast. I felt it was important to uh, furnish the whiteboard behind me with something relevant. So I've attempted to draw a Formula One car, but my artistic ability is quite limited to copying mid-90s drawings from Autosport magazine. So my automatically draw a version of the 95 Ferrari or probably the 40 is more uh, accurate in this case. It seems to have an extra low rear wing. Is this Hockenheim's back? <laughs> yeah, let's go, let's go for it. I think that's just my inability to do things to scale. Uh, <laughs> but no, we'll go with your explanation. It sounds much better. Excellent. Well, that's some good uh, audio-visual content there for a purely visual, no, purely audio medium. <laughs> I know what we're doing. So yeah, Scott Mitchell, nothing exciting behind you that you've been drawing though? No, but um, I would like to correct you for a horrific butchering of my name there. You're, you're, you're usually so good. You're so good and attentive Have to I the double-barrel name. You did, uh, only on the second attempt. When you did the initial introduction, you were spot on, 10 out of 10. So don't worry. Um, I, I, only, I only joke because I know, that, I know that you make a genuine effort to embrace my uh, new sort of, well, half new identity. So yeah, thank you. I'm all good. Nothing uh, strange behind me, just my office. Um, I will say that um, if I sound particularly rubbish or mad on this podcast, you know, just worse than normal, um, I will blame that on a healthy amount of uh, dental work that I had done this morning, which has left my jaw absolutely killing. Well, you can at least talk and there's no visible blood, so it can't have been that bad. No, no, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here raring to go. One thing I'd like to just quickly say on Ben's excellent artwork is just on, because this is an audio-only medium i think it's absolutely necessary that you need to take a photo of it ben send it to ed so that ed can share it with the masses on twitter done i've also taken a frame grab so yeah, me we've, too, we've me got too but i didn't want to say it in case ben, <laughs> ben felt self-conscious <laughs> 
The one thing I would say, having seen it a little bit bigger now, is I think the driver needs a little bit of work on their head size because they the, seem the, to be the, the crash enormous. helmet looks like it's. I mean, if it is in Hockenheim spec <laughs> and super low downforce, it must be going really fast because it does look like the helmet's just been stretched back. It's got that sort of elasticated. I'm going really fast effect. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted to create the illusion that the car was moving at speed rather than <laughs> static. So I'm glad I accomplished my uh, my aims. That's what McLaren are trying to do at the moment. So that's appropriate <laughs> enough for this uh, <laughs> for this podcast. Right. Maybe they need to hire me. Maybe that's the mistake. Exactly, exactly. I'm not sure that would be a good move, but can't make them much worse, can it? But we'll get on to McLaren in a bit. But because. I had a chat with Mark Hughes on our last podcast looking in depth at Mercedes. We thought we'd look at a couple of the other underachievers. I feel a little bit harsh calling Ferrari an underachiever because they were pretty strong in Bahrain. But Ben, we were a bit suspicious about Fred Vasseur's upbeat attitude after the race. Charles Leclerc retired, Red Bull dominated. Can you frame a compelling argument that Bahrain with the high tyre degradation exaggerated a weakness and that Ferrari really has got what it takes to fight for the title? I'm really not convinced. I'd like to be. Uh, because we all want Ferrari to be taking the fight to Red Bull, or anybody to be taking the fight to Red Bull. Well, the more people at the front, the better, ultimately. We just want a title fight. Yes, exactly. And obviously, that's the aim of the rules and the convergence that's intended with aerodynamic testing restrictions and budget capping and what have you, which we've talked about endlessly before. I just don't see the obvious signs of improvement at Ferrari. You know, They started last season with the fastest car of a single lap. They were ahead of Red Bull, who were overweight, and then... They didn't execute their races well enough to take advantage of that that pace advantage. Early in the season, once Red Bull got their act together, it became a walkover. And I just feel like we started this season, perhaps as you might expect, in a similar place to where we were at the end of last season. If anything, maybe Ferrari is slightly worse over one lap. You know, Austin, they were able to take pole. Abu Dhabi, not. Obviously, Bahrain last season, the clerk was on pole. Here, he didn't do the extra run in Q3, I know, but it never really looked to me like they were going to take pole position. And even if they did, they didn't have they didn't have the race pace, did they? They were they were going to get walked over in the race. Whereas Bahrain the previous season, it was close. Exactly. If you look at it in qualifying, it was three tenths. Now, I think two things. Firstly, if Leclerc had done a second run, he'd have been a bit closer, certainly. But I also think Ferrari, if they thought they had a shot of pole, I don't think Ferrari would have taken that strategy. I think they'd have thought, we'll just use up the other set of softs and try and get pole. I think that was a confirmation they didn't have the pace. Yeah, absolutely. So they were surprised to maybe be as close as they were. Um, So that suggests Fasseur's statements are more bullish than the real confidence behind the scenes. And yes, they may well have fixed some of the reliability problems with the engine last year, which was, you know, we've said on a previous podcast, that was the main thing they needed to address because there's a virtuous circle that uh, stems from that if you get it right. Okay, Leclerc didn't finish the race. There was a problem with battery installation before the race, maybe. That's unfortunate, but I wouldn't take that as a sign. The reliability problems of last year would just manifest again. It's far too early to say that. So if we... Assume Ferrari is more reliable, ultimately, than they were last year. And they've got a little bit more power from the engine. You know, Clerk was talking about the car being a bit better on the straights. I think they've also shifted aerodynamically to be a bit slippery, a bit more slippery than they were last season because they were very strong in the corners, but they were giving a lot away in the straights. And that hurts in close races. We saw it in the early part of last season before the Red Bull became quicker. 
But I feel like that's then created some unintended consequences and further problems in terms of being able to set the car up, look after the tyres, especially. That's always harder to do if you've basically trimmed downforce from the car. And that massively compromised Ferrari's race, definitely compromised Science's race. And if you then factor in Peretti changing the tyres for this year and trying to make the front stronger and the rear weaker, you've essentially, in combination with what Ferrari's done, worsened one of their key weaknesses from last year, potentially. And I fear for them based on the events of Bahrain. I'm not in the round sure that they've got a chance of fighting for the title because I feel like they need to start with an advantage and cling on to it rather than play catch up to a team that's ahead of them. Just to throw in a Pirelli response, they're adamant that they have made the front stronger, but the rears are no weaker than they were last year. Now, a few drivers disagree with that, but that's how Pirelli say they've achieved it by changing the construction and the footprint of the front tyre. But that's just a small point of order. Well, I, I think it, on that, it just depends how you characterise it, doesn't it? If you've made the strong the front stronger, then the, the rear will be weaker in relative terms than, than it was the, the, the previous year. I think it probably depends on exactly how much understeer or oversteer you've got in your car will probably determine exactly how you 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 sort of phrase that. But with, where Ferrari's concerned within that, it, the big concern that I have is that everything that Ben's just talked about there adds up to a car that is slightly weaker overall than last year. And it doesn't have the consolation, which is that it was still quick enough. You know, like the big problem I had, and you could see this on Charles Leclerc's face after the race, we talked about this in the post-race podcast, is that last year when you would speak to him, he would be able to focus on the positives, at least initially, because there was all, it, it was just very easy to, to switch into we go again mode. But you can't, how can you go again when you didn't even go in the first place, which is basically where Ferrari was at in Bahrain it's not quick enough over one lap it's not quick enough over a race distance I don't think it's as bad as the events of the Grand Prix made it look uh I agree with Ben that it's too early to jump on the oh my god Ferrari's reliability is just as bad as before bandwagon at the same time I don't believe Fred Vasseur when he's talking up endless positives about the nature of their Grand Prix weekend because I don't think that really reflected reality it was certainly a glass very 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 half full um, way of looking at things so so it's not as bad as it looked but it's not as good as they claim and I, I think what I'm worried about within that is I kind of agree with Ben which is do I see this as an organization that can outdevelop Red Bull I, I, I don't I, I just I don't see what evidence there is or has been of that for for years I mean that was one of their biggest weaknesses when they lost to Mercedes the last time they were in a semi-sustained title fight so I, do, I really don't want to be in, I don't want to echo what Ben said in providing a very, very early season, you fear for Ferrari, but it is a bit worrying. And I don't see Ferrari as being the Red Bull closest challenger. The good news for Ferrari fans is that Bahrain is a specific circuit. There will be other circuits on the calendar where that balance of limitations will shift from rear to front naturally and be more in the range that perhaps suits the Ferrari baseline. They will obviously learn and adjust their setup, so they should be able to improve on what happened in Bahrain regarding the rear tyres. But as Scott says, all of Ferrari's most successful recent seasons have tended to come from having an advantage at the start of the season that they can try to build on, and they've had varying levels of 
failure in, in not quite building or delivering on that advantage. So when they start the season behind, considering they haven't shown the capacity to outdevelop their rivals through a season for a long time, that's a big worry. And then you've got the added factor of Vasseur essentially inheriting a team that he hasn't put together that was working for a number of years under you know, a career Ferrari man who they would have been very loyal to, I imagine, because he was a nice guy uh, and very good technical leader. How is Vasseur meant to just magically s- sprinkle Stardust and make this operation suddenly function more effectively than it did last year? We've talked before about how this is a needs to be a long-term thing. He can't fix things straight away. There's also going to be an element of internal blowback and people who perhaps were loyal to previous team boss not wanting to stick around, not really believing in the same cause. So I get in one sense why Ferrari's done what it's done after the failure of last season in trying to mix things up, but you can't just install a new leader and expect that you're going to kick on from last season and suddenly fight for the title when you weren't really fighting for the title last season. This is a long road to get Ferrari kind of stabilised in a position where they might then make the fixes that mean that they can fight for titles in the future. That's how I see it. Yeah, I am interested to see how Ferrari goes at Jeddah. I think that will be better for them, the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix weekend. But having said that, although I do accept that the tyre degradation was a big concern for it in Bahrain, Red Bull also sacrificed a bit of pace to protect the tyres as well. And they were able to do the two stints on the softs in that race, which Ferrari couldn't consider doing. They had to do two stints on the hards. And even when they were both on the same softs at the start, Leclerc was dropping off at 0.68 per lap. Pretty steady loss of time. There was talk about matching Perez in the first stint. Well, Perez was behind him, so Leclerc was... containing, containing Perez, not matching him. Exactly, exactly. So that's irrelevant. It's how quickly Verstappen's, to be honest, cruising off into the distance. So that concerns me. On the reliability side, I do agree we can't say what happened there is definitive confirmation. They've got the same problems as last year. Reliability's a big problem. However, when you've said reliability's your big focus, you've done a huge amount of work on it, to have an engine failure of some sort. We don't know the exact cause of that one yet, so we have to be a little bit cautious there. So they lost Leclerc's car in the race. They also had an issue with his control electronics in the morning that they detected, so they changed that. We don't know exactly how serious that was, but that's a couple of concerns have been raised there. So even if it's not the same problems as last year and it's something new, that is a bit of a concern given it's been such a priority. So... I hope Ferrari can be stronger because the more cars that can fight for victories, the better. But I think everything points to them just being that little bit behind. And I think you could move the performance sensitivities of the circuits around a bit and it's not going to transform things. But maybe we go to Jeddah and Ferrari's got the edge and we're having a completely different conversation. But Scott, also on Ferrari, one piece of news that has emerged from Marinello is that David Sanchez, Ferrari's head of vehicle concept, has left. So what do we know about that and the reasons for it? Yeah, I was about to... um throw a grenade into your running order for the podcast and and mention um, not as a sort of neat segue but just because it fit with what we were talking about before all of this is a very bad platform to then lose one of your senior technical team members isn't it I mean he is yeah head of vehicle concept and Ferrari has this technical directorless structure on on the technical side and I know that Mattia Bonotto would always rail against the suggestion that he had made he had retained himself as technical director while he was team principal. And <laughs> I, I, I believe I believe that was genuinely true. Like I don't believe he acted as technical director. That there was this structure in place where you had um, 
you effectively have like a chassis boss and a concept boss and an aero boss. And I would be fascinated to know who actually had ultimate say and where whether the because there is still a hierarchy within there you can't just be, well uh, Bonotto did didn't he surely really because well, he put he put that team in place they were no, his picks he, right he, so yeah obviously he would have had ultimate overriding authority but I just can't imagine that even Mattia really thought it was functional for the team as team principal for him to be like okay day to day I'm gonna call the I'm gonna have the final say in your day to day technical decisions so someone within those departments would have had to have rise up. And, and I I get the impression it was Sanchez as the head of concept and some of the stuff that you hear about the way that he was trying to impart his ideas and philosophies on the way Ferrari designed a car. And I think he was ultimately the technical head of the 22 and 23 cars. And that's he was also a key part of the recovery from, you know, first of all, creating the 17-18 cars that made Ferrari a bit more of an innovative technical force in Formula One, um, we know that they got in certain specific areas elements of the 2020 car wrong, not just the engine, but that was ultimately based around an expectation that they would have performance-wise from the engine. And I don't think it would be fair to throw the technical, the the, the chassis team, for example, or the aero team under the bus for what happened in 20 and then 21. We we know that that was predominantly engine-related. So this guy has been at the at the forefront of a lot of the good stuff that Ferrari has done in recent years. I believe he was in charge of the 22-23 car, so he created the most likely title contending Ferrari in recent years, having also been a key figure in the most re- the, the the title contending Ferraris before that. And now he's out the door. And I don't think I don't think it's knee jerk anything related to what happened in Bahrain. I'd be surprised if it was him even deciding that's it I can't do this anymore I don't think he's been sacked I think he has resigned having made this decision or been edging towards this decision over some time I just I just don't think it doesn't jump out at me as a as a snap post Bahrain decision either way and it does seem to be linked with the fact that there's interest in his services from a team in the UK and the there are a few contenders for that but um, just to give everybody a little peek behind the curtain, Ed, do you reckon that someone overheard us chatting in the Bahrain paddock last weekend? Yeah, it was funny, wasn't it? I think it was it on Sunday when we were wandering through the paddock and we were talking about technical director candidates for... I think we were probably talking about it within the Williams context. I think it was Saturday. Technical. I think it was the Saturday after, after we'd Vowles spoken to James Vowles, yeah. yeah. No, that makes sense. So we were talking about that and the name I sort of threw in was David Sanchez. And... I didn't do that from a position of knowing he was leaving Ferrari because I didn't know that was happening. I can't claim that. This isn't how F1 journalism works, Ed. You need to claim now, in hindsight, that you knew all of this before it happened. (laughs) Well, there are plenty of people who like to do that after the fact, but I didn't know that. What I did know is I've been hearing very positive things about Sanchez for quite some time, actually. I remember quite a few years ago being told, actually, this guy is someone who could have a technical director future in F1. So I'd mentioned it as a, well, maybe if there's no opportunity for him to take a technical director type role in Ferrari. He might want to go somewhere else. And I'd said if I was in Williams's position, I'd be giving him a call. I've no idea if they have. I've no idea if he's going there. But he's somebody who's very, very, very well regarded. So yeah, I'd be interested to see where he washes up next. I'm inclined to think that this is a loss for Ferrari rather than anything particularly positive. Yeah, it can only it can only be a loss. I mean, he he is highly regarded that 
as you say, I mean, it's, it's, e- it's easy for someone to have nice things talked about them. And then actually it turns out we hear this all the time in F1. Suddenly the guy leaves and that person's then being given pelters from the people that were previously talking him up or he's being briefed against a little bit more subtly. So have to sort of take it with a pinch of salt, but I've never, there's never been any indication that he's a problem area. Let's put it that way. And when you consider the elements like last year with development, there, I I think that one one of if not the biggest problems with Ferrari's in season development last year is I don't think they were aggressive enough with their number of developments and how they played the budget cap. I I don't think they left themselves enough of a development budget for the 2022 season and there was an element of them getting a little bit lost along the way and having to reassure themselves but actually they ended the year pretty convinced that if they'd cracked on that they that they were going in the right direction. I just don't think they had enough quantity. I think that was that was a significant issue. So no indication, at least, that there was a significant deficiency on on his side. He was, by all accounts, a, a good a good senior person to have around, which maybe leads into that you know technical director qualities that you hinted at from before, Ed. So he will be a loss to Ferrari and an asset wherever he winds up. I think Williams would be too much of a step down, even if it was as a, a genuine shot at being a technical director. But, you know, Mercedes or maybe even McLaren, where he worked before, I, I don't know if he'd go there replacing the existing people as a technical director, but maybe there's another role within that organisation if the technical director one doesn't become available. Because let's face it, both of those organisations have quite a bit of pressure on them at the moment. I think if you were being hypercritical, you might say the Ferrari concept for last season was flawed in the sense that they didn't know how to develop it. There was certainly an element, and Mattia Bonotto mentioned it publicly, that the cost cap, they didn't quite get their numbers right on that. They didn't give themselves enough headroom to be able to develop effectively. But they also didn't have the confidence that they knew how to bring big updates to that car and therefore they didn't so you could say well maybe they didn't understand the concept well enough or the concept has too low a ceiling in terms of its performance potential and maybe that's what we're seeing now because you expect most cars this year to have been pretty much evolutions of last year because it's a cost cap new rules etc you can't throw everything away aston martin might be the one exception and maybe that is on sanchez if he's have concept and then you could also say well if he's effectively technical director at Ferrari, but he's not, and the incoming administration has not indicated to him that he would have that role, maybe that in conjunction with Bonotto leaving, he thinks, well, you know, like anyone might do question your own situation. Maybe it's time for a fresh start, a new challenge. And if there's teams out there, like Scott's mentioned, that are offering a much clearer route and obvious opportunity to have that firm responsibility... You tick both boxes. You get the title and responsibility you probably deserve from the work you've been doing for recent years in the background. And you also get to make a fresh start and uh, and move on with your career, have a fresh challenge. Yeah, well, one thing we can be certain of, he is going to pitch up somewhere in the not-too-distant future, so I'm sure there'll be news on that very shortly. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Scott, let's move on to McLaren now. We've talked plenty about their struggles already through our testing and Bahrain coverage, but you've been doing a fair bit of work in really understanding the detail of what's gone wrong there. So can you explain how McLaren realised it was going in the wrong direction and what's going to change with the famous Baku upgrade? <laughs> yeah, obviously a lot of uh, emphasis is being put on on this upgrade. And when you hear everything that's happened and what they're going through, that there is actually a degree of logic um, to it. I, I will prefix this by just saying that everything I say now isn't a, isn't an, doesn't excuse McLaren from the mistake that they've made in, in, in the first place. I think it's, it's, think it's important to, to face up to that straight away. And to be fair to McLaren, they are fronting up to this. They should have done a better job with the tools that they already have available. They should have basically spotted this sooner and then not left themselves in a position that they weren't able to start 2023 with the car that they wanted. Um, So this can basically be traced all the way back into, I think, around September 2022 to pinpoint the moment that McLaren realised it was in trouble. Um, You'll you'll both remember and the the, the listeners will remember, there was the uh, rule change late last summer that the FIA pushed through to raise the floor edges by 15 millimetres to combat porpoising. Um, And every team, not just McLaren, were talking about the impact that this would have. Um, because the, the the flaws on these cars are so massive and sensitive that they are huge performance drivers and 15 millimetres is is still a lot. Um, McLaren was one of the teams that was actually, I think, among the most vocally supportive of the change, which turned out to be a delicious case of F1 irony, because <laughs> as it turns out... Um, Turkey's vote for Christmas after all. Scott. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so basically what, it, what happened is, uh, as every team went into the process of... Um, exploring the effect of the, the the floor edge height increase and how to recl- reclaim that performance, McLaren realised that actually its existing floor edge design or what it was intending to try and do for 2023 to follow its existing geometries wasn't compatible with the new increased ride height. Um, James Key said that it gave them a much bigger loss than anticipated and described it as a really big knock. So basically, they lost a load of performance and then as they then tried to add performance to the car with those existing geometries, they couldn't make the progress that, that they wanted. The problem is you you don't know what you don't know and you do have to go through the development process to get to that point and realise, where, where, where's our development curve going? Like, we, we, we don't know. Because it could be an element of understanding or something that means that you have not a huge amount of progress initially, but then you make a tweak or you find a breakthrough and then suddenly you unleash all the potential that you thought was there. That never happened. So then McLaren's in this point late last year where they're thinking, we need to go in a completely different direction with this and change things in quite a drastic way. Credit to them, they decided to do that. They knew that that would probably put them in a position of starting on the back foot. As they progressed with this different I believe floor edge geometry, which I'm guessing is going to be the centerpiece of the new floor, which I assume we'll see in in Baku and maybe some other stuff around that to really maximize the the floor. They realized that this was actually quite prolific. That was the word that that Key used, but I think it was they were making so much progress with it, but it was still fairly immature in terms of making sure that the design would be robust enough and that they really understood it, that when it came to signing off what they would have for the start of the season, they thought, we're better off persevering with this for now and just being absolutely convinced by it. And that means 
locking in starting the season with basically the design that we've abandoned. So that's that's where McLaren got to. That what they say is that what they're seeing now, obviously they've continued this process and they're going to leave the sign-off for the upgrade in Baku as long as possible, is that they're still seeing really good gains, especially compared to what they had before. So this is why they're really confident about Baku, because it's not just a case of, oh, well, you know, we've got quite a good car, so if we can just add two or three temps to it, we're going to be good. They've got a fundamental area of the car that they're doing differently and they're seeing a very different result from it in simulation. So that's the good thing for McLaren and for McLaren fans. Everything that they've said there is, as far as I can tell, completely legitimate. I think it's nicely honest. I think it all adds up, which is something that we can't always say when teams talk through where they are. They're clearly much further along in what they think their understanding is of their problem versus, say, where Mercedes is at at the start of the year. But as I to just to go back to what I prefixed all this with, it still highlights the fact that there was a fundamental aero understanding limitation to begin with, because to sort of paraphrase what Lando Norris said on the eve of the season, a top team doesn't make this mistake. A top team is on top of this earlier on. And that has nothing to do with their wind tunnel not being as good as they want it to be. It has nothing to do with the new simulator coming online later or whatever. It's McLaren not doing a good enough job with the existing tools. Yeah, that last point is the thing I'd be most concerned about if I was a McLaren fan or indeed if I was Lando Norris or Oscar Piastri. This idea that McLaren is supposed to be trying to find a way back to the top and like all the midfield teams break into that group at the front and challenge at the top. But they always just seem to be behind the curve. You know, the new rules are meant to be a big opportunity for them. Last year's car was, I think, probably too conservative to begin with, and then they tried to add a lot of performance to it. They did okay. I think Singapore, Japan time, the car took a step. But then, like you say, Scott, they've realised, well, the rules have now changed. So they're having to react to that, by which time they've already set their kind of template for the following year. And now they're into a situation where they're having to change again and find a new baseline. And that's not going to come on stream until race four. Obviously, let's not be too quick to judge McLaren, but it it feels like they need to be a team that's kind of on top of things and finding innovations, not a team that's just scratching around, puzzling over why things don't work, especially a team with that history, that level of inf- infrastructure. I know that they're developing that again, but that's also feeding into this as well. They're just a team that has so many, so many fires to put out seemingly every season they can't just have a a normal season uh, where they can just focus on incrementally adding the performance maybe someone like Sanchez if he was to go there seeing as he seems to be quite hot on interpreting rules and getting the initial concepts nailed even if Ferrari's development then then lets them down maybe that is what McLaren need because they they don't look and haven't to me for a while looked like a team that others are looking at trying to copy Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it because what McLaren has shown admirably through 2022 and if if this is if they make the step that they say they're going to make from Baku onwards and it might not be instant, you know, that they might take a bit of time to really understand the package and how it works, but I think there's enough evidence that suggests they're very good at understanding it once it's in front of them, but they're not necessarily the sharpest at being able to come up with those ideas in the first place. They're a team of they're a team that is very, very good at playing catch-up. And that means, I think that's a testament to the work they've done on the culture within the place. Don't panic. 
work through things logically, look at what other teams have done, right, do we have the capacity to do this slightly better than other teams have? And I think that they've shown that they have because they've obviously overtaken some midfield teams last year that they started behind and blah, blah, blah. So that's all very good. But I am wondering if the, this may have just exposed that underlying aerodynamic limitation. And if I then think back to the the, the peak of the the revival... Did they get to a point where they had a fundamentally decent car in 2019, late in a or fairly late in a, in a rule cycle? Obviously, there was the front wing changes in 19, but the broad carryover from eight, 17 and 18. And then through 20 and 21, you're still building on that same rules package. The car's nicely understood. The designs are converging. So it's really about getting the most out of established principles. And did all of that combine to mean that actually McLaren had just got themselves into a position of having a really decent midfield car that then had what is, I think is now becoming increasingly clear, is a pretty special driver in Lando Norris in the car that then elevates that into something a bit better. May, I'm not, And I'm not saying that as Lando is totally papering over the cracks at, at McLaren, but is he further embellishing the amount of progress that they actually made was the progress we saw not a mirage but was the was there actually a bit of a lower limit to that progress than we saw because other teams dropped the ball Lando did a great job the rules converged and McLaren did a good job of of doing that within that convergence it doesn't actually create a particularly dynamic creative absolute front running F1 team on the design side the the development side but creates a very effective team in the midfield for that particular era. And now it's actually being exposed a little bit as not quite as far along that journey as it needed to be. Yeah, that, I think that's a good description. They're fundamentally a midfield team now. They've stabilised, but they aren't really able or sure how to take that next step. And I would be as blunt as to say Lando is papering over the cracks. I think I said on one of the pre-season podcasts when we were trying to identify something each team needed to work on. McLaren, for me, needed to build a car worthy of Lando Norris as a driver. And they haven't done that from what I can see so far. And it's all very well for James Key to say, oh, you know, we've got better tyre management and we've worked through some of our strengths and weaknesses and improved on the weaknesses. The car's better balanced. But everything I could see from what Lando was saying over Bahrain weekend, that the car was still as difficult to drive as ever. You know, he specifically mentioned how difficult it was to be consistent with it. So not only is it not that well balanced and difficult to drive, it's also slow. So, you know, where where are the positives in that? You know, last year's car was like that, but it was further up the grid, I think. Although obviously Bahrain is only one race and McLaren struggled there last year too. But that was also for specific reasons um, that aren't really related to the reasons this year. So I think they're in a pretty sticky place. And okay talking up this big package and new floor in Baku buys them some time and a bit of respite from the criticism. But there's a lot riding on that because if they don't come out of the Baku weekend with a significantly improved car looking like it could be, when they're saying they want to be, what, fourth by the end of the season, fourth best, which means they don't think they're going to finish fourth, that's a backward step. McLaren is a team going backwards to me. Yeah, unfortunately, there's a number of different things here. The Baku upgrade may well be in the right direction. And if that's a positive step, that's good. That means they're 
going the right way. But all those things you mentioned about some of those characteristics that have carried over, and Norris made it pretty clear, even though he didn't explicitly say it, that he felt it was still there. That's worrying because there's weaknesses that aren't being improved on. And I always talk of it in terms of understanding of the underlying science, and this applies to all sorts of things. Mainly it's in terms of aero stuff, but the interaction of aero and mechanical platform, all these things matter. And in order for all the stuff about the infrastructure, things, the wind tunnel, simulator, et cetera, et cetera, to be valid, you kind of want to see McLaren maxing out where it is basically this season, where it should be. And it's not done that. It just hasn't. Even if you take Aston Martin, which has shattered the grading curve out of the equation, they're still not at Alpine's level and they're still messing about falling out in Q2. And I think that point about Norris papering over the cracks, I think it might be even more extreme than that in that... Norris is able to deal with that car that's on a bit of a knife edge very well. And I think that's almost led to the team underestimating that it does have some fundamental problems with the way the, the car is working. They've talked about the problems with the performance of the car, with steering lock applied as the the tyre grip degrades, with lock being added, etc., and not being able to mitigate it. So, yeah, I've been sort of happy with McLaren's progress, certainly up to... The end of 21 and then 22, I thought, well, they've had a few little problems. That, that can be just a little bit of a hiccup. But now I'm thinking, yeah, you're not really getting to the staging point you need to in order to capitalise on all these new things that are coming. The the one thing I would add is not necessarily playing devil's advocate, but just to present what um, a couple of people in McLaren said in, in Bahrain relating to the car characteristics. Um, I agree with um, what you say about, you know, Norris clearly not happy and letting on that there are still certain things about that car that makes it tricky to drive. And I'd be stunned if McLaren has dialed out the entire McLareniness of of that car. Um, but there is a feeling that they have made genuine progress on the worst of the traits that we saw last year. And the phenomenon that both Norris and Oscar Piastri were describing in Bahrain was basically explained away as rather than being because the car was needed a, a particular manipulation to get the rotation right that you know only Norris could do before the the I'm going to just say ugliness that we saw on corner entry through corner and to exit was actually a, a, a that was a consequence of just a lack of aerodynamic load right so the way they've the way they've viewed it is they feel that they've made genuine progress on addressing the slightly funny traits. They're also quite happy with the fact that they feel that they're making the the, the chassis work with the tires better than they have in the past. And the slight the well not slight but the the, the trickiness of the car in Bahrain was related solely to, to 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 downforce basically. So the point being that. It's very simple to say this because it sounds like a very Williamsy kind of problem. But if you just add a bit of aerodynamic load, the core car characteristics are better than they they were before, and that was what the feedback was from Norris and Piastri to to the team. Now, the big question mark I have there is: once you then change fundamental areas like the floor, do some of those car characteristics change? And actually, this is all very nice and positive in as a hypothesis, but will it translate? into reality that that's the bit that's still a bit unknown calling it a bit williamsy is quite good i think i sort of see mclaren as a kind of higher resolution williams at the moment you know some similar problems but just not quite as endemic or as uh soul destroying 
Yeah, uh, but go on. No, I was just going to say there's one other thing that I wanted to add on that very quickly, which is actually Piastri's performance relative to Norris in qualifying didn't have the hallmarks of a Ricardo-esque struggle against Norris. If when you looked at the data and the onboards and the way they were driving the car, the differences between them were quite easy to explain away by just a little bit of experience and confidence on Norris's side versus Piastri's. There wasn't the gaping chasm in the slow corners that there were for for, for Ricardo, and Piastri was talking quite positive, positively after qualifying about you know having a decent handle of what the car needs. He just needed to do it slightly better, which I don't remember Ricardo really ever exhibiting, especially in, especially last season. So he feels like he's half a step ahead, and I think that I really rate Piastri, and I think his technical understanding as a driver is very good. But there's no way he has cracked in one and a half days of testing and one Grand Prix weekend the madness of a 2022 McLaren that only Norris could do, for example. So I see that as that car must be better on a basic level for a rookie to come in and be closer to Norris in the way that he was. Maybe. It could be that Piastri's just a bit more of an open book compared to Ricardo. doesn't have any ingrained habits. Also might just be a bit more flexible and adaptable as a driver. You know, he has been talked about as a potential mega talent in the sort of Norris mould, but obviously further down the experience scale. So it might just be that McLaren's found the temporary band-aid of a sort of another Norris to plug into the second car to kind of lift up its performance and paper over the cracks. I think we have to give McLaren license on the tyre management side of things because the race was so compromised. Piastri only did 13 laps. Norris was in and out of the pits because of the pneumatic problem or topping up the hydraulics or whatever it was. So we don't know, actually, whether they're better on the tyres than they were last season. But when you talk about the car struggling into the corner, through corner and exit, I mean, that's all the phases. (laughs) It's not performing very well. And it just seems to me like they're yo-yoing. So they start with a car that doesn't have enough load and it's a bit easier to drive, but not very good to drive because it doesn't have any grip. And then they add performance to it and it becomes impossible to drive unless you're Lando Norris and a complete superstar. That's, that's and the now, key thing, yeah. And now they've yo-yoed back the other way to a car that fundamentally doesn't have enough downforce, but is slightly more benign. And I just this goes back to the point Ed was making. There just seems to be a fundamental... Obviously, this is a very difficult, complicated job. And people far cleverer than us are trying to work these things out. But it just speaks to a fundamental lack of understanding of where those limitations are coming from, that they can't find a happy sweet spot between those two extremes. It comes down to where your ceiling is in understanding. I think the point about lacking a bit of load, that's true. You can have a better balanced car that's lower on load. That's also true. And also when you're talking about the aero characteristics and the load it is about the characteristics the fine control the ability to move that arrow center of pressure around at will all of these things the three corner balance all of these things matter and that's where i'm a little bit wary mclaren might be lacking a little bit of the understanding this is really complicated stuff though as you say ben we're not trying to say mclaren are idiots they're far from it their car is still pretty quick and i'm sure with baku coming it'll get quicker it's just that if that team wants to be racing at the front on the timeline it's laid out it really needs to be kind of a a strong front of midfield level at this stage and it currently isn't well they have to they have to use this the the mistake that they've made initially being too slow to realize where they needed to go with the floor edges any other built-in characteristics that might still exist 
any problems that do arise with the new package that comes in Baku and whether that solves everything or or, or not, um, what they they absolutely need to do is have a crystal clear understanding of this by the end of this year because otherwise, otherwise the new wind tunnel and the simulator is a waste of time. There's no point in having these new facilities with this much higher theoretical ceiling in terms of what you can do if you don't actually understand how to get the best out of your tools because you don't fully understand the principles that that you're working with. And that sounds ridiculously flippant and easy for me to say because obviously I don't understand it. But when you're when you're dealing with those those fine margins and those those final few things you can get out of your car, McLaren is go is absolutely going to need to do that. And they've got the wind tunnel that comes online, I think by the end of June they're 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 aiming for. Stella said that he can hear it running from his office when it's switched on and it's doing the correlation work which he said is like it's kind of soothing because he's like okay there's like good stuff coming (laughs) I can I can sort of like look for look for the future it's like an audible light at the end of the tunnel um but and there are limitations with that tunnel and it goes down to some really simple things like it taking a couple of days to actually test stuff in the tunnel at the moment because they lose it shipping it to, to to Cologne and you can't afford to lose days running test items and, and stuff like that you want to be able to run more advanced uh, experiments in the tunnel and use different methodologies that they can't use at the moment but just to finish on something that Stella said which I think is a really really important admission from McLaren is he says that the tunnel for example cannot be an excuse for what they've done on the 2023 car they should have done a better job with the tools they have and I think we talk about, you know, the Baku upgrade is something that buys them a bit of time. Also puts a bit more pressure on James Key and his technical organisation. If it doesn't work, what the hell happens there? And the, the talk of the tunnel and the simulator and, yeah, the first real full McLaren that will benefit from this is the 25 car kicks the can nicely down the road. But finally, there has been an admission that they haven't done a good enough job now. And that mindset's absolutely key because if they were just completely using all of the infrastructure as an excuse they'd be pottering along doing the same things getting limited results now they'd wheel out all of that brand new shiny stuff for the 24 and then the 25 car and they would miss their targets again when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, producer Johnny here, interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. Is versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. 
Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're going to be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. One team we should very briefly finish off on because they are connected to McLaren is Alpine Ben. Tricky to judge because of Aston Martin leaping forward. Roughly where it should be in front of the midfield pack. So what do you make of Alpine? Is there much to say there other than they are about where you'd expect them to be? Oh, it's really difficult to judge. You know, So having been quite hard on Ferrari, feeling like you know, I can't be as optimistic as I'd like to be about their title chances at the top of the show. With Alpine, I feel like I just need more time to see. I, I feel a slight sense of disappointment. You know, I felt like last season they were really strong, developing really well, really going places. I really like Matt Harmon. Everything he says seems really sensible. It seems like after all the chaos of the the early Renault years, they've kind of got things stable there at last. But I was expecting to see a bit more. But of course, Bahrain was so weird for them in the sense that Gasly's qualifying was an absolute disaster and then Ocon's race was an absolute disaster, partly his own making and partly the team's. It's just really difficult to get a read. Gasly obviously had a good race, you know, up up into the points, but the circumstances related to that. So I sort of feel like there's a good race car in there. I feel like there's a good qualifying car in there, but you can't take away the fact that they didn't finish best of the midfield they were battered by Aston Martin and they qualified in Q2. Ocon was behind a Haas. So have Alpine just fundamentally changed the car so much that they just don't quite have the level of understanding that they need to get the most out of it? Or have they overreached? And I'm, I'm just not sure at the moment. I think um, a big part of their problem in Bahrain was that their driver lineup were peak Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly over the course of, <laughs> of, of the weekend. Um, I think we saw, and I, I, I use the word peak there, but what I what I actually mean is that they, I think they hit their respective lows, which is Gasly just got completely lost in qualifying. I get the impression he might have been a little bit overconfident going into the weekend. And actually, I think the whole Alpine team might have been guilty of that a little bit. Him saying that uh, I hadn't driven the car close enough to the limit and therefore didn't know what to do sort of seemed like saying I didn't know how to do my job yeah it was I think I, I just think he just felt there was enough in re- enough in reserve that he would know what to do and like it would just come naturally so I think he underestimated that a little bit but then buckled down and did a good job in the race whereas Ocon's yeah, weekend went Ocon's weekend went the other way in that I actually think he did a good job I think in the end uh, I may be misremembering this but in the end Ed he got the most out of qualifying I think that was possible in an Alpine yeah, Ocon was about right. It wasn't too bad. So there's pace in that car. There's maybe a tiny bit more to be found. But yeah, it wasn't a massive underachievement or anything, certainly. 
but then his race was because he just capitulated and got in this horrific circle of I think he just I think his head dropped and he just lost concentration and then just three penalties or whatever it was and his race is ruined. So they had complete they had complete polar opposite weekends, which added up to Alpine not getting the most out of what they could have done, which I think was one of the things we talked about a lot when that driver lineup was announced and over the winter, which is is that lineup going to be absolutely dependable for you to get the most out of your package? I don't think it is 100% of the time. So I want to see what that car's capable of when the drivers have a clean and good and complete weekend. When that happens, which I think will happen sooner rather than later and could happen as early as Jeddah, I suspect the result will be that that car is clear of the main bulk of the midfield. I, I, I just think, I think it is. But, you know, is it going to be challenging the Merck on race pace? I, maybe because... We there was a hint they might be able to, but it wasn't quite a fair comparison. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, the Merck's a little bit all over the place. If, they, if we move away from your rear tyre deg sensitive tracks, does the Aston come a bit more with, within the reach? It's not impossible. So I'm a bit like Ben. I really want to see where that car actually is because I think it's got one of the widest ranges of any of any car and any team just because it could be actually quite good or it could be absolutely nowhere in the midfield. The best moment here that people won't have seen is that Ben just suddenly got plunged into darkness. But I think I did a really good job of just <laughs> about muddling through to the end of my answer there. Without I, I did start to break, but I think I held it together. We'll let, you, we'll let you have the last <laughs> word after that moment of darkness, Ben. <laughs> yes, yeah, sorry. It's just I'm so good at sitting still that uh, the officers shut down around me. And Mannequin I had to get up Ben to, strikes again. <laughs> turn the light back up. I was going to um, actually finish by asking you guys a question. So... I know Esteban Ocon is quite guarded and good at keeping his cards close to his chest when it comes to performance and what's happening with the car and what's happening with himself. But from what you've seen and from talking to him in Bahrain, either in testing or race one, how does he feel about that car when you're driving it on the limit? Because Gasly obviously found there wasn't this extra comfortable ceiling of performance in qualifying that he could comfortably rely on to get through he got bamboozled by the car so to me that would suggest that it becomes a bit peaky and difficult when you're getting close to the limit but it could also be Pierre Gasly doing Pierre Gasly things as Scott suggested so Ocon who had a much more normal run through practice and qualifying especially like where do you where does he read the car in terms of how easy it is to access that performance? Because that's the one thing I'd be concerned about, that the car might be too peaky at the limit. Yeah, I, I would just say that reading between the lines, I think he feels that it can be improved in that regard. But I think they made a good step through the test and certainly then into the race weekend when they finally took the fuel out of it and pushed it to the limit. I think they are playing catch up though on understanding that car's balance over one lap but that, that just feeds into what I was saying about it has the widest range of where it could end up because I don't think we've seen that car really close to what it's capable of in quality or the race yeah I'd agree with that I think we'll get a better read of it in the coming few races I think they're fine but they're not going to be like Aston Martin bothering or anything like that front of the new midfield but nothing more than that which is fine for that team and where it should be of course provided it does then kick on from there well, thanks very much, Ben Anderson and Scott Mitchell Malm, for your insights. Head to the race.com. Don't forget the hyphen, loads to read there on the world of F1 and the rest of the motorsport world. Check out our sister podcasts, including Bring Back V10s, our IndyCar podcast, our Formula E podcast, MotoGP, and also check out our YouTube channel. 
Well, we'll get some more answers to where Ferrari, McLaren and Alpine will be in Jeddah in the coming week. So stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.